last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Peston, in an unusual place. Tell us where we are, Steph. Yeah, we're in Downing Street today in number 11 in a rather grand room, uh, one of the state rooms here, because we are interviewing the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, aren't we? We are surrounded by wood panelling and the typical Downing Street flags. There's a portrait of a young Winston Churchill on the wall it's given me uh, a bit of interior inspiration in here actually quite like the carving oh god i didn't think of you as such a traditionalist <laughs> but anyway um i'm dead posh me <laughs> well, we know you're posh so we wanted to talk to the chancellor about well there's loads to talk to him about his his own business ventures and then we've been talking a lot about productivity uh, that is the amount that each of us produces in the economy because that's directly linked to our living standards uh, and we wanted to know whether he's as obsessed you may have listened to our productivity special a few days ago and we wanted to know if he's as obsessed with boosting productivity as we are and then what do we want to talk, We're to talk about talk a bit about skills as well and whether they're an important part of what happens in our economony too and, and indeed why he's set there well i he and rishi sunak are so obsessed with cutting taxes and whether that's a sensible thing or not yeah right so here is our interview with jeremy hunt Thanks for chatting to us today. I want to start a bit about asking you about business and your kind of, because it seems to me you've whole, always had a kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Am I right in thinking you did magic shows when you were a kid? I did. Now, how did you dig that one out, Steph? <laughs> that is seriously impressive. Yes. Yeah. But uh, no, I've always been on the make one way or another. Yeah. So magic shows when you were a kid and then when you were in uni, am I right in thinking you, were, you sold jam? marmalade to the Japanese. That was actually post-uni. Yeah. But yes, I tried importing a few ties from Hong Kong when I was at uni. Did that make any money? Not really, if I'm honest, no. But, but where uh, do you think this came from? Because you were, you were, I mean, it has to be said, an entrepreneur setting up quite a few failed businesses initially, mm. as it were, but you obviously really were driven to want to create businesses. Where did that come from? Because neither of your parents were in business. No, I 
come from a military family. Um, my dad was in the Royal Navy. I think I did have a sense throughout my childhood that uh, he was struggling with money. Mm. And uh, I then went to university in, uh, when Margaret Thatcher was in her heyday and she was extolling the virtues of being an entrepreneur. And I thought, actually, I, you know, I don't want this to be a weight on my mind like it's been for my mum and dad. I went to private school, so did my brother and sister. You know, they were scraping together money for school fees, which were, which are pretty tough for people on a naval salary. And so that was perhaps part of it. And part of it was, you know, that kind of Thatcher feeling in the 1980s that it was a great thing to set up your own business. I was inspired by that. But why Frank Cooper Marmalade in Japan? <laughs> so, um, uh, yes, we could be here a very long time on that one. But to cut a long story short, um, I went to Japan uh, after I left Oxford and uh, I went to learn Japanese. I came back. I must have been 24. I thought, I'm going to start my own business now, get it off the ground. And what did I notice when I was in Japan? There was no Frank Cooper's Oxford Marmalade anywhere in Japan. <laughs> this is the big opportunity. I'm going to make a fortune. Did you like it? Um, I quite liked. Uh, I quite liked. I can't pretend that uh, you know I'm a massive marmalade buff, but I um, I did manage to export half a container load of marmalade to Japan. I have these memories of flogging the length and breadth of Japan on the bullet train with a rucksack full of marmalade samples. And uh, uh, I'm afraid the marmalade boom had passed in Japan. <laughs> and so uh, it was not to make me my fortune. This didn't stop you though, in terms of your business endeavors, did it? What did you learn from, from the I research really did. you made there? And I think that, um, you know, some people say you set up a business in your 30s and 40s when you've got lots of contacts, you know, an industry backwards. Um, and there's lots of merit in that. But I really like the idea of setting up a business in your 20s when you've got no kids, no family, yeah. no mortgage, you can fail and it doesn't really matter. And it was, I probably had three businesses that failed before I found one that took off. And, and, and how did you identify, I mean, because they were quite random. If you look back, you had marmalade, you had playgrounds, I think you may even had travel guides. They're all so different. They are. And um, they just I just sort of randomly went from one idea to the next. Oh, that didn't work. Let's try another one. And, uh, you know, it's uh, luckily I don't conduct economic policy that way, uh, Robert. You'll be very pleased to hear. <laughs> um, but um, th that is one of the joys of setting up a business in your 20s. You can try different things until you find something that works. And uh, I always remember Churchill said that success is the ability to go from failure to failure without losing your enthusiasm. And that's a great motto for entrepreneurs. I think I heard Henry Kravis talk about that the other day. And lots of business people say you can't make it big unless you learn how to fail. Do, do you understand? I mean, obviously having failed, has it, has it contributed to your resilience, do you think? I think it has. And by the way, the same is true in politics because there are lots of failures in politics and you, you, you have to learn from those as well. But I think the most important thing is that when you fail, you don't take that as a judgment about your personality or your ability, but you just take it as an opportunity to learn exactly what went wrong and what do I know for the next time. And one of the things in business that I really learned is if you possibly can start a business in a growing market because a rising tide lifts all boats and mm. uh, life is much more forgiving. If you set up a business in a market that isn't really growing or even shrinking, then the price of failure is much higher. Yeah. One of the things we have talked a lot about on the program, in fact, we did a special on it last week, is Britain's relatively low 
productivity. And one of the things, I mean, there was a very interesting piece of work on this done by the Office for National Statistics only a couple of weeks ago. And it showed that one of the reasons we have low productivity in this country is poor performing businesses are not going out of business in a way fast enough and being replaced by newer, higher productivity businesses. Do you think that we don't yet have quite the right structure for proper entrepreneurialism that can you know, deal with this productivity problem? Because, I mean, it is striking and it is connected to our living standards that productivity here is about a third less than in America, about a fifth less than in France. You know, we'd be richer if we could sort this. I mean, here's the interesting thing about our productivity Robert, uh, we are about 15% less productive than Germany. And that is not because Germans work harder than us. It's because they invest a lot more in plant and machinery around every single worker. So they're able to physically produce more and they can, of course, be paid more as a result of that. But despite that 15% increase in German productivity levels, uh, we actually grew faster than Germany since 2010. And when you ask why is that, I think it's because we actually have a tremendously strong startup culture in this country. Uh, we've developed over that period a technology industry that's double the size of Germany, is three times the size of France. So we are very good in this country, innovation, startups, getting things off the ground. I would say probably second only to America. And I look at that and I say, well, if we could have that startup entrepreneurialism and the productivity that they have in Germany and America, we could really smash it. And that's why in the autumn statement, you know, the most expensive tax cut I did was a tax that most people never heard of called capital allowances, which is making it cheaper for businesses to invest because that's the way I think we can close the productivity gap. You talk about investment and that's really key to all of this, as you say. But if you look at the kind of what lots of industries are saying about investment, they're saying it, it's really difficult to get it because there's so much uncertainty. Uh, you know, we've had how many is it? 11 industrial strategies in 13 years, which makes it very difficult for businesses to plan. Do you see a time when things are going to be more stable for businesses then? I do. And of course, there's been political uncertainty uh, over the last few years, which I hope has now really settled down. Um, and, you know, if there's a Conservative government after the next election, there'll be even more stability and certainty, which I think would be a very good thing for the economy. Um, but I think that's already changed in the last year. I mean, today we had Make UK saying that a year ago, only 30% of manufacturers thought that uh, we were closing the gap with Germany and France when it comes to manufacturing competitiveness. Now it's over 50% say that. And people think there is stability now. There's a long way to go. But what I would say is this country has the most amazing potential. And the thing that excites me the most, if you like, the, the entrepreneurial side of my uh, role as chancellor is that the industries that are going to grow the fastest this century are the industries that we're the strongest at. So we talked about technology, but there's also life sciences, uh, advanced manufacturing, clean energy, uh, creative industries like film and TV. These are the sectors that are really gonna grow like crazy and we're very good at them. I mean, I think it is just important. I mean, I'm certainly not defeatist at all about our prospects. We have got great strengths. But when you talk about the, the period uh, back to 2010 versus Germany, I think there are just, two points that, are, that matter. One is 
you know, they do still have significantly higher productivity than us, which means they have higher living standards. And in the end, it's living standards that matter more to people than the rate of growth in the economy as a whole. And equally, you know, we are seemingly, almost every forecast says this, going through a couple of quite difficult years now where we're likely to grow slower than most of our competitors. There is another point. I mean, the LSE has done a lot of work which shows the the quality of British management isn't what it should be. So for all our successes, we do have these tremendous challenges. So I suppose one of the questions I want to ask is, given that you are so personally committed to improving the competitiveness and the productivity of the UK, why is your government's focus on tax cuts, which some would say, frankly, has very little to do with any of that? Really good question. I'm going to give you two answers. The first is that chances have very little control over what GDP does one month over the next. And, you know, in the last year, you know, I could point to the fact that the economy was predicted to decline. It's actually grown. You could point to the fact that right now the growth figures are not particularly brilliant. Um, but what I do have control over is how competitive we are going to be in the next two, three, four, five, ten years by the policies that I introduce. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is that people like the International Monetary Fund, the Center for Economics and Business Research, they predict that over the years ahead, we are going to grow faster than France and Germany. The CEBR said that we are going to close the gap with Germany over the decade ahead. And that is because of our strength in startups. Now, tax was your very specific question. I think it's really interesting. If you look over the last decade, 10, 12 years, the OECD countries, the advanced economies that have grown the fastest have been the ones with lower taxes not higher taxes. Now, you can find exceptions within that, but on average- I can find quite a few exceptions. Yeah, no, but, it, but if you look at the average, and if you look at just the G7, for example, you've got America and Canada uh, as the two fastest growing since 2010, with the lowest and third lowest taxes, respectively. But and you've got so, to be careful but not why to is confuse that? correlation with cause, Exactly. because there but, may be other things going on. Yeah, you know? and that's, that's exactly right. But this relates to Steph's point earlier. That's why as a conservative, I really do believe that lower taxed economies are more dynamic, more entrepreneurial, more energetic, and that's how we get competitive. Now, except not everyone does believe that, but I really do. And I look at that just very broad brush. I look at the regions of the world that are doing best, and it's North America and Asia, where taxes are lower than they are in Europe, which is growing more slowly. When you were in business then, did you make decisions based on tax advantages? Like was the things you did where you thought, I'm going to do that because that's got these tax implications that are going to help my business? Well, the way I thought about it was this. I didn't make a profit in my business. You've been very kindly listing all the failures I made. I didn't actually make a profit <laughs> for five years. And You sold one off and did all right, though. I did all right, yeah. But we didn't actually make a profit for not... Let's not get into that. Um, <laughs> um, I didn't make a profit for five years. And, you know, in that period when I wasn't making a profit... The taxes that bothered me the most were the taxes you have to pay even before you made a penny of profit. So, for example, business rates, employers, national insurance contribution, these are really expensive taxes that you have to pay right up front. So if you can bring those taxes down, 
you reduce the number of businesses that go bust. You make it easier for businesses to get off the ground. Yeah. Robert's big beef has always been on this podcast talking about management and business, which, you know, you've just been saying my big beef is around education and skills. So I grew up in Middlesbrough, a place where, as I'm sure you know, has a lot of problems. And, I, you know, I went to school with people whose dads were drug dealers, hitmen, blah, 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 the like. But the thing was, the school I went to was a Tory initiative called the City Technology College. And it was sponsored by British American Tobacco. So slightly explained why they were so lax about smoking in the loose. But, um, <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, but my point being is in that school, the one thing they were great at was less focus on the pure academics, which was quite difficult for a lot of my, you know, my peers to achieve because of their chaotic lives. And instead it was about the industry around us and about jobs. And I genuinely don't think I'd be sitting here now if that school had not existed and I hadn't gone to it. And so do you not think the economy we could do better from linking education more to the jobs that are out there and the skills that we need and less about just pure academics and setting everyone up for the same fall if they're not that way inclined. I totally agree with you, Steph, uh, 100%. And I would put it this way, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, our reading standards have risen to some of the highest in the world. Uh, we've gone up in maths and science in the international league tables uh, in the last 10 years by about 10 places. And as it's an election year, you'll forgive me for saying we fell by about 10 places in reading and maths under the previous Labour government. But whilst I think if you go to a state school and you go on to university, in this country, you get one of the best educations in the world. One of the most uh, expensive as well. Um, well, you get, I think you get a really good education and it used not to be the case. Um, when it comes to the 50% of school leavers who don't go to university, we can do a lot better. And I think places like Singapore, Switzerland, Germany have very well-developed technical skills. Our apprenticeship program has been a great success, but we need to go further with it because what we need to make sure is that every school leaver, every single one, whether or not they go to university, leaves with the skills that mean they can get a well-paid job. And we've started making progress on that, but we need to go further. But it's but, about I mean, businesses starting earlier in education though, isn't it? That's the thing, because you're talking about people at 16 leaving school, but I'm on about before that. The key was getting us at that age and, and talking to us about industry and jobs then rather than, you know, you need to know trigonometry or whatever to pass this exam. And we are in an industrial revolution. I mean, you know, I passionately believe artificial intelligence is, it's a general purpose technology, it's an industrial revolution. And almost none of this is being integrated into schools at the moment. Well, I think it's it's both actually is the answer. So to answer your point, Steph, you need schools to give people the basic skills because in maths and reading and science, you know, we're going to have a whole generation of Uber drivers who don't have a job in 15 years time because we have autonomous vehicles and they will need to retrain and do something else. And without those basic skills in reading and writing and maths. So where is the government? Uh, well, that's why we're raising standards in schools and but on pure academics it's not about like financial literacy where's that instead of you know instead of pure maths well, exams wouldn't it be great I if mean, people knew what interest rates were in APR and everything else that's why the prime minister wants people to study maths until they're 18 but I would say that in maths we've risen more than 10 places in the international league tables we're 11th in the world according to the PISA league tables but it's not just basic skills. It's also then giving people technical skills where, as you rightly say, you want employers to develop really close links with schools and FE colleges 
And that is really what's made the apprenticeship program a tremendous success and actually something that people want to go on. I think it's a really big change from 15, 20 years ago now that apprentices Apprenticeships are really sought after by young people as a brilliant way to get into the world of work. But I'm sure there's a lot more we can do. So that seems an appropriate moment to go off and have a quick break. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Now, we started by talking about how, in the end, you know, the whole point of managing the economy well is to improve people's quality of life. And quality of life is directly linked, particularly for people on lower incomes, to the quality of public services. Now, we know that many of those public services, health, justice system, you know, it's a long list, are in trouble. Inflation undermined, cut the value uh, in real terms, of resources going into public services by nineteen billion pounds, you spent nineteen billion pounds on tax cuts rather than restoring those crumbling public services. That was a political choice. Why did you make that choice? Because, as someone who was health secretary for nearly six years, which gave me quite a few grey hairs, I have to say, I know and I believe passionately that the only way we we're going to get the NHS, the resources it needs in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years time with new cures for cancer and dementia and an aging population is to have an economy that is growing well. What I announced at the autumn statement were plans that will increase investment in the economy by about 20 billion pounds a year. And the biggest ever business tax cuts were part of that full expensing. So I was investing for the future in order to be able to fund those public services. Now, what I would say about public services is, of course, the NHS is going through a very difficult period uh, after the pandemic with the industrial action. But when it comes to policing, we've seen crime halved since 2010. When it comes to standards in state schools, we've seen them go right up. So I think that you can see in public services, this is a conservative government or a set of conservative governments that is really determined to get good outcomes. But in the end, what we understand 
is it does depend on economic strength. And just to finish on that point, you know, when I was health secretary in 2018, I negotiated a 20 billion pound rise in the annual budget for the NHS. I was able to do that because uh, George Osborne and Philip Hammond had put the British economy back on its feet after the financial crisis. And now I've been through a pandemic and a cost of living crisis. My job is to do the same, is to put the economy back on its feet. Many people would say you're doing absolutely the right thing in encouraging investment. This is a country which has not invested enough over many, many years. The fruits of that in terms of growth take some time. And in the meantime, uh, you know, we've got, you know, what is an in effect public service provision undermined by inflation. And after the election, you know, at the moment, we've got public spending limits that most economists say are just not sustainable. So most of the questions I get asked as a politician are criticizing me for being too short term. That's the first one I've got that's criticized me no, for no, being I'm not, too- I'm not criticizing me. No, 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 but, it but, is but a long term thing. Yeah. People saying you are paving the way for a period of austerity. That's what people say. So I absolutely make no apology for taking decisions for the long term growth of the British economy. I accept it will take time to get investment coming into the UK, but you know our capital investment regime is now more competitive, not just than France and Germany, it's more competitive than America. And I think it's the right thing to do for the economy, and it will mean more money for the NHS and public services in the long run. But I accept it won't happen immediately, but I think if politicians only do things that are going to have an immediate short-term impact, then we're not going to reach our potential as a country. Now, I know we're almost out of time. We've got two, I think, little questions that I think are probably slightly less heavyweight. One is I just wanted to put to you, Gordon Brown, once said to me when he was doing your job that nobody remembers the finance guy, which is why he was desperate <laughs> to be prime minister. Do you, does that bother you? Do you worry about that? No, I am, you know, I'm the cat that had nine lives in politics. I wasn't expecting to be chancellor. It's an incredible privilege to be here. But um, when I became chancellor, I said to myself, that is it. Um, and uh, it stamped out any dreams that I may previously have had in former incarnations of being prime minister. So I'm, I'm very happy where I am. What Thank about, you for asking. Would, when you uh, leave politics, though, is there any chance we'd ever see you on Strictly? Because I hear Michael Gove says you're an incredible Latin American dancer. Well, um, you won't see me on Strictly, but it is absolutely true that uh, before I became an MP, I was a very enthusiastic Latin dancer. I went to the carnival in Brazil for three years in a row and I learned a Brazilian dance called the Lambada. But it's not just becoming an MP. Since then, I also got married. And Lambada is very much a singles <laughs> dance. It's not a dance that you. Don't would... you have a sprung? We thought yeah. we read you had a sprung floor yeah, for this, dancing. I'm afraid this is uh, Michael Gove propaganda. I actually did have a, <laughs> a very nice floor in my living room for dancing, but I didn't put it in. It was there when I bought. Do you the still house. dance then? Uh, I dad dancing, Steph. Yeah. Uh, nothing more serious than that. Well, that's important. It's a good way to relax. Anyway, Chancellor, <laughs> very good to see you. Yeah, thank Likewise. you. Thank you both. So there we go, Robert. That's the interview with the Chancellor done. I mean, you've interviewed him loads of times, but this is slightly different, isn't it? Getting longer with him, getting into asking more stuff that other than just your day-to-day -day news stuff. Yeah, it was definitely more relaxed than the sort of normal political interviews that I do. And I, I was quite interested hearing, you know, about his child and what was it in his childhood that meant for most of the first part of his career, he 
tried and actually repeatedly failed to create businesses. He did end up creating, uh, which actually we didn't really talk to him that much about this business called Hot Courses, which is a business that advises young people on the best universities to go to. He made, well, the business was sold for 30 million pounds. He made 14 Mm. million quid out of it. So, you know, he does have some claim to have been, if not, you know, in the absolute alpha league of business people, a relatively successful business person. I mean, for a period, he was the wealthiest member of the cabinet. And I was quite struck that he said that the driver to make money was, you know, most people would think, you know, his dad was an admiral of the fleet. You know, they were sort of posh and must have been pretty well off and successful. But he said he wanted to make money because he saw them struggling. Admittedly yeah. struggling to pay his school fees. It's not it's not how people at the bottom end of the income spectrum struggle. But, you know, he looked at them and he thought, I want more money than that. I know, I was totally fascinated by that because it, it instantly went higher in my estimation because of that. But also he was very honest about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was quick to move us on though, wasn't he, about the point about how much money he made from the sale of it. <laughs> and there we are, that's politicians for you. What did you think when he started talking about the reasons for cutting taxes? Were you persuaded by that? Well, I do, you know, have, you know, you and I talk to businesses all the time and they do say one of the biggest pressures for them is all the taxes. And, you know, him explaining that before you've even made a profit, you're paying business rates and national insurance and things like that. They are the types of things which are prohibiting businesses from getting that, you know, first ring in the ladder to get to profit. So but I can see his said, point on that, that. That said, let's be absolutely clear. Nobody ever created a world beating business by doing it for a tax break. Yeah. And, you know, you talk to any of the business geniuses around the world, they say the worst basis for making an investment is on the basis of tax. What you do is you look at the market, you look at the product. Those are the bases on which yeah. you make your but decisions. But it would help if you haven't got as much tax to pay to get to the point where you're making money, though. I suppose so. But on the other hand, when he says, look at Canada, look at America, where they have relatively low taxes compared to a Germany or a Scandinavia, you know, or a France, yes, it is true that that's the case, but whether there is any correlation between lower taxes and what matters to people, which is living standards, mm. I slightly doubt. I mean, the gap between rich and poor in America is massive. Uh, far too many poor people in America, are far fewer poor people in Scandinavia, in much of continental Europe. And again, you've just got to be quite careful not to confuse growth with what matters to people, which is how much they take home. Yeah, but they use the numbers to suit the narrative, though. That's what I read from all of that was, you know, him talking about growth and talking about how us compared to Germany on that front. It doesn't mean anything to real people, all those numbers, does it? It's how you, as you say, it's living standards. It's how you're actually feeling as a business owner or as a person trying to survive. Again, though, there were moments I thought of quite endearing honesty. You know, when I put to him that point about why Gordon Brown was desperate to be prime minister. Yeah, that I thought was it was great. quite interesting. He, he, I'm not sure I've heard him say that before. That You know, for him, once he became chancellor, you know, he just said, this is the last big job I'm going to have in government, which I thought was, well, actually, by the standards of most politicians, refreshingly honest. Yeah. I have to say, though, I still don't think a lot of our politicians get the point about skills and how important it is. We did seem to be talking at cross purposes, didn't we? Yeah. Because he kept talking about academic standards and you wanted to talk about... Yeah. Practical skills. Yes, I just think that we still don't value them. And that just highlighted to me more that massive gap between 
real life academia for kids who don't have the structure at home to be able to learn in an academic sense, but have amazing budgeting, resilience, and all these other skills that are vital in business. And they're not being honed because the setting is so much about exams. I was hoping that he might get that because it feels like, you know, the Tories do talk a lot more about apprenticeships than we've had for a while, but still that that point about technical skills. He also didn't lacking. deny, I mean, as you, as you pointed out my obsession with we need better quality managers in this country. He didn't deny uh, it. <laughs> he, he certainly didn't, he didn't push back on it. And I suppose you could, so, I mean, there are two things about management. There is the quality of management, and then there's the issue of whether managers are motivated to take the right kind of actions. I mean, I suppose it's possible you could make the case that some of the sort of tax reforms they want to make might help in terms of motivating managers. I don't know, but he he certainly didn't engage with, again, what I regard as a fundamental problem for this country compared to many parts of the world is we just don't have high enough quality people running, yeah. uh, running businesses. His face lit up when we talked <laughs> about the Lambada. Uh, um, and he clearly was very, very, uh, well, he probably still is very good at it. He didn't want to be associated with still doing it now, though, did he? <laughs> I, don't think that's, I don't think that's quite, yeah. I don't think that's quite. Dad dancing, he quite, said. I think he, I, He's I, a man who goes home and knocks out an amazing Lambada when no one's looking. I mean, certainly when we're not looking, I think that is <laughs> probably uh, right. But I mean, I think, you know, what I've always felt about him, I mean, having known him actually for years and done quite a lot of on-the-record interviews with him, is he is a slightly unusual politician in that he does try to answer the question. I don't know if you felt yeah, that. Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, have you interviewed him before? Yeah, I've interviewed him as health secretary when I was at the BBC uh, for BBC Breakfast. But yeah, he, he's warm, isn't he? And he, he does try and answer the questions. He's, he's He comes across as a nice bloke. And I suppose the sort of final thing, which I thought was just quite funny, was um, where he said nobody had ever criticised him before for taking a long-term view. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wasn't criticising him for no. taking a long-term view. I was making a subtle point that there is not quite enough transparency on the tremendous, frankly, challenges that are going to be inherited by whoever wins the next general election because, you know, this is not a moment given that they've decided to cut taxes rather than invest in public services where George Osborne would say the roof was being fixed because, you know, the roofs we know indeed of schools are collapsing as we speak along with quite a lot metaphorically of the rest of the public sector. And we don't yet have a a plan, certainly from this government, to sort it. Mm. The other thing, um, you, you know, you mentioned the Make UK stuff that's out today, which is all about how they're feeling slightly more optimistic about next year. So I've worked with Make UK for a long, long time. So when I was starting out as an engineer, I, I did some work with them. And then for every year for the last 10 years, I've hosted their annual conference. And every single year, it's always been about the lack of stability in government and about skills, uncertainty and taxes, all the things we're talking about. So it was interesting to hear him today using it as a kind of positive. He said, what was it, that 50% of them are more optimistic now? And I'm like, that's half that aren't though. <laughs> you know, that's statistics for you. Well, look, let's decide between us that since this is the start of the year, that we think we can see a glass for Britain. It could be half full rather than half empty. I, I'm an optimist. 
I'm always an optimist, but you I just take don't view. sound like it sometimes. <laughs> well, that's that's because I am somebody who feels I've got to, you've got to expose what the risks are out there, and not everybody wants to hear those yeah. those risks. And there, yeah. are, there, as we know, there are some very big ones out there at the moment. Yeah. So this is the start of our interviews. If you've got any suggestions for people you think you want us to interview, any great business leaders out there, or anyone really that you think would be Remind good to talk to, remind people of our email address: restismoney at gmail.com or you can send uh, in your suggestions on our social media pages as well just search the rest is money and we will be back again with another episode this week we've got various topics we want to talk about haven't we uh, and i should also just make the normal disclaimer there was tons of stuff that we know you would have wanted us to ask and indeed we wanted to ask but there's never enough time no there isn't i thought you were going to say it, and the usual thing is i just need to mention my book <laughs> thanks for mentioning it Steph yeah there we are right thanks for listening everyone that's it from us bye bye all the best